first airing in 1994. It ran for 10 seasons. It's one of the most watched television shows of all time. Ross and Rachel and Joey and the rest of the friends, you know, they haven't made any new episodes since 2004. But this iconic sitcom still ranks, even today, as among the most watched and most talked about shows around the world. It's currently airing in over 100 countries. And it turns out the Friends are particularly popular in the 1.5 billion residents of India and Pakistan. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't necessarily endorse the show as quality family viewing, but I've always been struck by the title of the theme song that we just heard. I'll be there for you. It's the title of my sermon today. I'll be there for you. Listen to just a a few of the lyrics. Like you're always stuck in second gear. When it hasn't been your day or your week, your month, or even your year. But I'll be there for you when the rain starts to pour. I'll be there for you like I've been there before. I'll be there for you because you're there for me, too. Those are great lyrics, aren't they? Because they remind us of the importance of being there for one another, for showing up no matter the cost, for stepping up in hard times, for serving instead of always expecting to be served. So if a silly sitcom about friendship in New York City in the 1990s can cause us to reflect on servanthood, then how much more, how much more should the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century portray this vital virtue? Well, today we are continuing our series that we've called Healthy Church, and it's based on the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 3 as we considered the importance of healthy leadership in God's chosen community, the church. We considered the the critical role of, of elder or overseer or pastor and how these leaders act as father figures and protectors of the church family. We also talked about our role in respecting God's plan for this model of healthy leadership. Now, because false teaching and pagan practices had been creeping into the church, Paul instructed Timothy to put people in positions of leadership that will safeguard two key areas, right doctrine and righteous living. And these Two key areas are necessary for the sake of the spread of the gospel and vital to our functioning as a healthy church. And so in our passage today, in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, Paul continues this theme of healthy leadership by focusing on the role of deacon or servant within the church body. Now, as Often, uh, as is often true with, with our friend Paul, he likes to make lists in his letters. He's a frequent user and writer and author of lists. And 
I want to remind us that we have to be careful that we don't descend into rule-keeping or list-monitoring based on our personal ideas or preferences or opinions. Instead, I've been encouraging us as we work through Timothy to step back and look at the big picture of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. And specifically today, we want to talk about what it means to be a servant in the kingdom of God. I read a story about a farmer who had a team of horses in which one horse consistently worked harder than all the others. The farmer said, they're all willing horses. The one's willing to pull, and the rest are willing to let him. (laughs) Not great. You know, sadly though, sometimes that's true in the local church. Everybody is willing, a few are willing to work, and the rest are willing to let them. You know, here in the United States, we live in a very consumer-centric culture. You know, we're familiar with mantras like, the customer is always right. And we've come to expect quality customer service when we engage in commerce. But you know, sadly, that attitude sometimes creeps its way into our church life. And we come to expect excellence in our church programs. And to expect that the local church will meet all of our spiritual needs. We even use phrases like church shopping when we are looking for a local church to attend. And we use our customer-consumer standards at times to measure the local church. But when it comes to serving in some practical way in the church, it seems like some Christians have a a built-in reflex that causes them to run for cover. But just a quick glance of the New Testament words, servant, it's the same word that we translate into English as deacon, servant, service, to serve. If we we just did a survey of all of those in the New Testament, it would reveal to us that all believers are called to be servants to the Lord and to his church. Yes, some should be official servants with a title like Deacon, capital D. And Paul gives us some qualifications for this office in our text that we're going to look at. But In order to really understand the office, we need to be familiar with this term service within the body of Christ from the New Testament. You see, whether we are official or unofficial as we serve, we need to recognize there are no job shortages in the church if we are willing to meet the needs of others. Service is not an option for followers of the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I want to consider with you the first truth, if you're following along on the outline from your program. Truth number one, all Christians are called to be servants. That's a pretty direct statement. There are no exceptions. 
No exceptions. If a person is a follower of Jesus Christ, he or she will be developing into a servant. And that is so because Jesus is our supreme example of servanthood. Think about this for a moment, if you will. Do you ever just kind of marvel that when God took on human flesh, took on the form of a man, and when he came to this earth, you ever wonder why he came as he did? You know, God could have chosen for his son to be born in a palace where he would have had the best of every worldly comfort. He would have had the finest foods. He would have been pampered, waited upon for his every need. But that's not the path that God chose. Instead, instead, what did God do? He chose a poor carpenter and his wife to bring the Son of God, into the world. The Son of God grew up in a modest hut, a shack, if you will, where he learned the trade of his earthly father. His hands were not the soft hands of a nobleman, but the rough, calloused hands of a carpenter, a worker, a servant. Later, Later, Jesus became a teacher, a rabbi, a leader, and he had disciples of his own. And as his disciples, like many of us do in the flesh, began to jockey for position, for power, to be number one, what is it that Jesus told them? In Matthew 20, verse 26, he says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, on the very night of his betrayal, when if there ever was a time when Jesus needed to be served... You know what he told his disciples? He said to them, I am among you as the one who serves. That is an astonishing statement. The Savior of the world, there in that upper room with his disciples saying, I am here to serve you guys. And then what did he do? He demonstrated what he meant. He got up from that supper table. And he got a basin of water and a towel. And he stripped himself down. And he began to perform the servant's task of washing the disciples' stinking, filthy, smelly feet. Jesus showed his disciples that Christ-likeness means serving. There's no other alternative. John records this in Jesus' words in John 13, beginning in verse 14. He says, the, the words of Jesus, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, here comes the punchline, all right? The important statement. 
It's all important, but this is it. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, what? If you do them. And so you know what, friends? We all know these things. You have likely heard many lessons and sermons, maybe read some books about Christian service. Remember when I was in Bible college, I took a whole semester of a class called Christian service. But the question is, do we, we, we know these things, but the question is, do we do them? Do we do them? Do what? Do we wash smelly feet? Do we raise our hand to do the dirty servant jobs? Are we willing to help people who may not be able or even willing to repay us. You see, that kind of service is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus. Everyone who knows Christ will grow more and more to be like Christ by acting like servants. No exceptions. But we also must realize then that Christ has gifted some to serve in unique ways. Within the church, within God's kingdom, there is a specific spiritual gift. Paul writes about this in a couple of different places, in his lists, if you will, of spiritual gifts. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he calls the, the spiritual gift, he calls it the gift of helping. In, in Romans 12, he calls it the gift of service. And so while all Christians must serve in various ways, some, some are specifically gifted by God for service in supportive, practical, and often behind-the-scenes ways. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and the thought came to me of football. I love football. I love to watch football. I love to play football when I was younger. But I want you to think of it like this. Those with the gift of service, they're like the linemen of the football team, all right? You know, those big, chunky guys, huge guys. Now, they don't usually share the limelight with the quarterback, the star, or the running back, or the flashy wide receivers. But without the hard work and the sacrifice in the trenches, by the linemen, the so-called skill positions could never begin to do their job. And do you see how the kingdom of God is just completely upside down from the world's way of thinking? We honor the quarterbacks and the wide receivers and the running backs. They're the stars. But how many of us could name the linemen? the guys in the trenches, and yet they are the gifted ones. The gifted ones. So, while some Christians will have the gift of serving and devote themselves to that area, all believers are on the team, and they should be involved in a lifestyle of serving. 
Because our Lord and Savior did not come to be served, but to serve, and we're called to be like him. I read another story about a man who used to visit a tiny country general store. The store had a, a clerk by the name of Jed. And it seemed to this man that Jed was about the laziest man on earth. Well, one day he noticed that Jed wasn't around when he came to visit the store. And so he asked the proprietor, hey, hey, where's Jed? Oh, Jed retired, the proprietor said. Retired, huh? The man replied. Oh, what are you going to do to fill the vacancy? And the owner replied, Jed didn't leave no vacancy. Jed didn't leave no vacancy. And brothers and sisters, I am concerned that the same thing could be said of many Christians with regard to their service for Christ. They didn't leave no vacancy. Every Christian should leave a vacancy when he or she moves on because we are all called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you say, amen? Amen. amen. But as we study further, the concept of serving in the New Testament, it does become apparent to us that, point number two, some Christians serve in an official capacity. And so as the New Testament church developed, these official servants came to be known as deacons. Comes from the Greek word diakonos. And all we did in English was take the Greek word, and it's called transliterate, and we turned it into an English word. But literally, the word just means serve or servant. That's all it means. So what we're talking about for the rest of the day is the difference between capital D deacons, that official position, and small d deacons, or servants, which we are all called to be, and which some are recipients of God's gift in a unique way. So I want to make that clear. Now, let's talk about the office of deacon, because it is recognized in Scripture. Many Bible scholars would agree that the office of deacon or servant finds its roots in Acts chapter 6. If you've read through the book of Acts, you might remember that the church in Jerusalem grew, grew considerably in a very rapid pace. And within a, a month or two, there were thousands, thousands of new Christians in the city of Jerusalem. It went from just this handful of guys following Jesus around and a few more that were a part of that to thousands of people. Now, apparently, many who had visited Jerusalem from distant locations, they'd come for the feast of, of Passover and the, the feast of Pentecost, and then they became believers. They became a part of this new thing called the church. And many of them decided just to stay there in Jerusalem, to grow in this newfound faith in this guy named Jesus. Well, this growth crisis created many spiritual needs and material needs. 
And it, it even led to the a temporary arrange, arrangement of pooling resources. Some people there in Jerusalem were selling their land and their homes in order to provide funds to take care of all these, I don't know, today we might call them refugees, these people that had shown up and it stayed. There were even a number, I would imagine in the hundreds or maybe thousands, who knows, a number of widows in the church without any means of income. Remember, there were no, no social security back then, folks, all right? So these widows were being served food on a daily basis through this new rapidly growing church. But then a problem arose. What was the problem? Well, these Greek-speaking Jews, the, the folks that had come from these outlying areas, they felt like their widows were being neglected in favor of the, the local Hebrews, if you will, those that were there already there in Jerusalem. And, and so they needed some fair administrators to handle this situation so that the apostles would be free to devote their time to prayer and to the ministry of God's word to this rapidly growing church. Now, you can look back in the original text, and the word deacon is never used in Acts 6. But it's generally agreed upon that those first seven men that the apostles called to be appointed were the prototype deacons. They assisted the apostles by serving in practical matters so that the apostles could focus on praying for this vast growing group of people and teaching the word to all these people that were just new baby Christians. And so those, those men were officially recognized and ordained or set apart for the task of serving the practical needs of the people in the church. Now, many years later, when Paul comes on the scene, Paul, who we're studying today in 1 Timothy, he begins to write his letters to the various churches that he planted. When Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he addressed his letter. He said, this letter is to the overseers or elders and deacons. That's Philippians 1.1. Singling out the, uh, the deacons probably because they probably had a role in the gift, the financial support that that Philippian church had sent to Paul when he was out on the road doing his ministry. And then here in 1 Timothy, another letter of Paul's, Paul mentions these two offices again in his instructions to Timothy regarding church leadership. As a church body grows, the elders will need help in the practical and physical details of the church family so that they can focus, concentrate on the shepherding of the flock. And it's at this point that faithful servants, faithful small d deacons, can be recognized in an official capacity as a capital D deacon. So, as we consider the official role of the deacon in the New Testament church, I want for us to read together Paul's instructions to Timothy regarding these believers who were called to serve in this official capacity. But before we read it, I want to remind us, as I've reminded us before, remind ourselves that since we are called to serve, these attributes that we're going to be looking at here, 
specifically of the deacons, these attributes ought to be ones that all of us pursue in our lives as well. So you don't get to check out because you're going to say, well, I'm not a capital D deacon, so this doesn't apply to me. Because all of this applies to all of this. Does that make sense? So I'm going to just briefly look at these qualifications in just a minute. But first, let's read this text together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. The Word of God. So let's look briefly at these qualifications of deacons. There are eight of them listed in the text here as Paul talks about setting apart these official servants. The first one that he says is that they are to be dignified. Other English words that that are translated there uh, are grave, reverent, worthy of respect. You might think of this word as being the opposite of being a goof-off or a clown, all right? A deacon should have a seriousness of purpose in their life so that they communicate a sense of concern for those that are being served, dignified. Second, they are not to be double-tongued, double-tongued. Some versions say they're to be sincere. It occurs to me that a good way of illustrating that is this way. A deacon can't tell one person one thing and another person the opposite thing in an attempt to please everybody. You know what we call a person that does that? A politician, right? (laughs) That's what a politician does. Deacons are not to be double-tongued. Number three, they're not to be addicted to much wine. Now, wine was the commonly used beverage in the first century. There was no refrigeration. Everybody drank wine. Water was often dangerous to drink. Wine was used and served as a gesture of hospitality. And so it was important for the deacons as they were making their rounds from house to house, serving all of these people who were in need, that they would exercise self-control, setting an example in this particular area. Number four, deacons are not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Since a a deacon's duties often involve the distribution of, of money and gifts to the needy, there was always the possibility of greed or improper handling of these funds. And so... You can't appoint a person to the position of deacon if if they're inclined to look out for themselves first, particularly in the area of finances. Number five, this is my favorite one. They are to hold the mystery of the faith 
with a clear conscience. Isn't that a great statement? The mystery of the faith. That's Paul's term for Christian truth, especially the gospel. It it points to that which was once hidden, but now has been revealed in Christ Jesus. And so a deacon must hold pure convictions regarding the central truths of the Christian faith. In addition to sound doctrine, they must be sound in obedience, in actions, so that they can have a clean or a clear conscience. Holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Number six, let them be tested first. Prove themselves blameless. That word blameless is a close synonym to the word we looked at last week, which was a qualification for the elders, above reproach. It literally means not called to account. In other words, no one can easily point a finger at them. Blameless. But not just blameless. This blameless attitude is to be proved through testing. A test is something that's done to demonstrate what is good or real or genuine. Think about gold or silver. All right, and they have ways of testing the purity of the gold and silver. Testing it to prove it, to make sure it's not the junk stuff, but the real deal. Because nobody wants to buy the junk stuff and pay the real deal price, right? Well, deacons are to be tested in this area of being blameless. We don't designate a person as a deacon and then later on see if it works out. That's not the way it works. Number seven, a husband of one wife. We talked about this very phrase last week in in, in regards to the eldership. Literally, we said it's a one-woman man. And as we saw in the case of the elders... It's a term that refers to a man of moral purity, all right? Not somebody with a wandering eye. Not somebody carried off in improper thoughts or actions in this particular area. A husband of one wife. A deacon may be busy serving widows or single women, and it would be especially important to be a person who is pure in thought and in deed. And then finally... The eighth qualification, a good manager of his children and household. As is in the case of the elders, the home is the proving ground for the church leader. If a person is struggling at home, the last thing we want to do is increase their responsibility within the church family. That would not be fair to the church or to that person. So from this list, it is obvious that the church should never recognize someone as a deacon in order to get them more involved. We don't give a title to somebody so they'll, you know, be more willing to work. The real issue as far as serving in the official capacity of leadership within the Lord's church is that these people have proven spiritual maturity. They're not perfect, They don't get everything right all the time, but these attributes cause them to rise to the top amongst the people. Now, 
You might have noted that I skipped a couple of verse there, verse 11, right in the middle of this discussion about deacons. Paul suddenly inserts a verse about women in verse 11. And then he returns to his discussion about deacons. And this word here is used in a couple of different ways in the New Testament. It is sometimes translated as wife. But more commonly, much more commonly, it is translated as woman. It's the common everyday word used for woman. So the question often comes up as we get to this text. In the text here, is Paul referring to deacons' wives in verse 11? Or is he referring to women who are serving in an official capacity as a capital D deacon or as a servant in some way? Now, Bible scholars, translators, church leaders, I'll just be upfront about this, are split in this area. Thus, in, in various English translations of the New Testament, some translation committees have chosen to use the word wife and others have chose to translate it as woman. Now, in favor of the view that Paul is referring to the wives of deacons is the fact that the reference is sandwiched in between the qualifications of deacons. And so it would seem that if he would, you know, you know that Paul would finish first with one group before moving on to qualifications for another. But then uh, against that view is the fact that you realize that when we looked at elders last week, Paul didn't ma mention any qualifications at all for the wives of elders. You would think that as important as elders are to the church community, that there would be some clear qualifications for the wives if there are for the deacons. So what's going on around here? What's Paul talking about? Why would he do this only for deacons' wives? Now, another thing in favor of the view that Paul is referring to women as deacons is the word likewise. I want you to see this. All right, so he, in the first seven verses, he talked about, what, elders. All right, and he gave all the qualifications. And then he gets to the deacons, and he uses this transitional phrase, likewise. So like the elders, the deacons must be, bump, 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 bump. Then he gets to verse 11. Like the elders, like the deacons, the women must be, dun, 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 dun. So what are we to do? with this. What does it mean for us? Well, as we have repeatedly said as we worked our way through our study of 1 Timothy, sometimes good Christian people attempting to read the Bible accurately disagree, sometimes very vigorously. But one thing is clear, church family, in areas that may not be fully known, we must be careful never to devalue one another by acting with pride or arrogance because we think our particular take is superior. Now, here at Garden Way Church, our elders have made the decision that we will only have men serve in the official capacity of deacon. But as I said last week about the elders, this is about roles in the church, not about inherent 
worth. Men and women may have differing roles in the church without devaluation of worth. There is no excuse anywhere in Scripture, no sense anywhere in Scripture, that one's sex, male or female, is connected with being greater or lesser as a child of God. So, whether this group of women mentioned by Paul in verse 11 are serving as an official capacity or more informally, the high calling and attributes that Paul lists for them is important. And one one more reminder, these attributes that we're about to, to look at are to be pursued by all of us men and women. By the way, this is just an aside here, all right? It's not in my notes, but it just occurs to me this. Most of the servants in the church are women. I have served on the staff of four different churches. Most of the work gets done by women. Women who are servants, deacons. Maybe they don't have the capital D, but they get it done. And we need to recognize that and honor that and be thankful for that. Now let's look at these traits. Paul mentions four specific traits. First, they are to be dignified. One version says, worthy of respect. It's the same word, the very same word used for the men up in verse 8. Deacons are to be dignified. Women servants are to be dignified. That means they have to be honorable, grave, and serious in their service to the Lord and to his church. Number two, they're not to be slanderers. Some versions say malicious gossips. This is a a word that, that literally means a false accuser, someone who is unjustly criticizing others to hurt or condemn causing a severing of relationships. By the way, this is the very same word that we get our English word devil from, diabolos. You recognize this, that Satan, diabolos, the diabolical one, he is always busy trying to destroy the Lord's church with words. Words between God's people. Words of accusation or hurt or condemnation talking behind one another's backs, criticizing one another without the person being present. Those kinds of words and attitudes stink, and they destroy God's church, which is a tool of Satan and the very hope that he has of taking us down. So may we, brothers and sisters, not follow the lead of the diabolical one. But instead, may we speak words that build up, that encourage one another, that comfort our brothers and sisters in the church. Number three, they are to be sober-minded. Sober-minded, this is the same quality, the exact quality mentioned for elders. 
The word means clear-headed, able to make sound judgments. And it refers to someone who does not live by emotion, but instead by obedience to God's word. I want you to note that the woman leaders, as well as the men, are required to have this quality. When we serve, if we are easily swayed by our emotions, then we will not be able to help others towards God's truth, which is really the only source of true healing for anybody's problems. And then finally, they're called to be faithful in all things. Just in case you missed out on anything else, just be faithful in everything. What does that mean? Those who serve, whether it's capital D or little d, as a deacon, as a servant, everybody who serves must be trustworthy. That means we need to follow through on our tasks that we're called to. When we commit to something, we get it done. Well, after listing listing the qualifications for those who serve in an official capacity, Paul concludes this section by listing the rewards. And I want to look at them just briefly. In verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So a good standing, probably referring to to respect from within the church, along with good standing in God's sight. God is well pleased when we serve well because we're doing what we're supposed to. Jesus, remember, humbled himself by becoming a servant. And the scripture says God highly exalted him. That's in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself by becoming a servant and God lifted him up. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, lifted up. And so a person who humbles themselves and serves faithfully will be rewarded. Even if the church doesn't always notice, God notices. And then the final reward, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This could refer both to confidence before God and before people. A faithful servant can go boldly before God in in prayer, knowing that they're doing God's will. And also that person can have a quiet confidence as they deal with people, knowing firsthand the reality of the Christian faith. Well, upon his arrival at Hanville High School in Boone Butte, Louisiana, Devarius Peters was rightfully excited. It was graduation day. And he was about to receive a diploma. In fact, he was the first person in his family to ever do so. His excitement, however, quickly turned to shame and embarrassment when he was turned away at the door to the auditorium because he was wearing the wrong footwear. According to the school's dress code, male students were required to wear dark-colored dress shoes. Devarius said, I thought I could wear them because they're black, who was wearing the only dark shoes he owned, a pair of black athletic shoes. But Devarius said that his outfit abided to the rest of the, the code. 
He had a white shirt on and a tie and dress pants. Nevertheless, a school representative at the door disagreed, and they turned to various Peters away. Peters recalled, I was in shock. I felt humiliated. I just wanted to walk across the stage and get my diploma in front of my family. Well, fortunately, John Butler was on the scene. Mr. Butler was a paraeducator at the school, and he was in attendance to see his own daughter graduate. But Devarius spotted Mr. Butler, and he explained the situation. Butler said, of course, that sounded crazy to me. There was nothing eccentric about his shoes. They were just black shoes. Well, after a, a brief back and forth with the woman at the door, who would not be budged, Mr. Butler decided the quickest way to resolve the situation was to give Devarius the shoes off his own feet. And so that's exactly what he did. And so Devarius eventually walked, actually slid is a more appropriate term, across the stage with Mr. Butler's size 11 shoes on his size 9 feet. <laughs> and Mr. Butler attended the graduation in his stocking feet with no regrets. Butler said this was the most important moment in his life up to that point, and I wasn't going to let him miss it for anything. I was just happy to see him receive that diploma. Well, friends, when I read that story, it reminded me that whether we serve officially or unofficially, we are called to be deacons servants in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Service is not an option for followers of the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, we can either sit in the audience with our shoes on, or we can stand at the door with a legalistic mindset interpreting the rules, or we can take off our shoes and share them with those who need them. I'll be there for you. What's your choice? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that is at times sobering and powerful and reminds us of who you call us to be. Fathers, we leave this place today. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to grapple with these truths. Father, that we would be serious about following the path that you have laid out for us. Guide us through your Holy Spirit, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, in a moment, we're going to stand and sing our closing song. And I, as we do, I want to remind you that our elders are always in the corner back here to pray for you. To